Thank you. Appreciate that, and certainly what a pray, what a what a what a blessing that God is our salvation, and God is the lifter up of our head, and our our shield, and our buckler, and our strength, and so many other things in the Book of Psalms. We see that, and we certainly thank the Lord for that. If you have your Bibles, open up to Revelation chapter number two. And uh, I was just sitting there thinking, boy, we're in for seven weeks of going through seven churches in uh, the book of Revelation. And, uh, and I, I expressed at the very beginning, I thought, boy, I, wanna, I wanted to do all seven churches in one, but there's no way we could have gotten through it all. And I don't think we would have done justice to the messages and to the, uh, the information, really, that's given to us. And I know we could spend much more time uh, going through these things, but sometimes it's very good to take our time, not get in a hurry, and go through things and find out, hey, what does God want to say to us? And uh, I have just been enjoying looking at these churches. We're on the third church here, the church at Pergamos. And so Revelation chapter number 2 and verse number 12, and the Bible says this, And the angel of the church in Pergamos write these things, saith he, which hath the sharp sword with two edges. I know thy works, and where thou dwellest, even where Satan's seat is. And thou holdest fast my name, and hast not denied my faith, even in those days wherein Antipas was my faithful martyr, who was slain among you, where Satan dwelleth. But I have a few things against thee. Because thou hast there them that hold the doctrine of Balaam, who taught Balak to cast a stumbling block before the children of Israel to eat things sacrificed unto idols and to commit fornication. So hast thou also them that hold the doctrine of the Nicolaitans, which thing I hate. Repent, or else I will come unto thee quickly and will fight against them. With the sword of my mouth. He that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches. To him that overcometh will I give to eat of the hidden manna, and will give him a white stone, and in the stone a new name written, which no man knoweth, saving he that receiveth it. Let's stop right there and let's pray. Father, we thank you. One, once again, Father, for your goodness to us, for the fact that we can hold your word in our hands. God, we can have it with us. and God, we certainly thank you for that. God, I pray that as we look at this message to the church in Pergamos, I pray, Father, that you would make application to our lives and to our day and to our time. And God, that we would receive the message so very clearly from you. And God, that we would live that out in our lives. I pray, Father, that you would speak to hearts as only you can. Father, we'll be, thankful, we'll be careful to give you the honor and the glory for all that's said and done. And we ask these things in Jesus' precious name, I pray. Amen. As we think about the church in Pergamos, uh, and I, I've stated this almost every time, there are many uh, very, very popular opinions that these churches represent time periods, and I'm certainly not saying that they do not represent that. They very well could. But I also think that there's a lot of application that these churches could be a state of time in that church. In other words, 
there are churches today who are under persecution. We talked about that last week in the church of Smyrna uh, that was under persecution. Hey, even today exists churches that are persecuted. This week we'll look at Pergamos. And there are churches that this message would be very applicable to their situation and their time frame today in 2022. And so what I'm saying is these, each of these church representations could represent a stage or a point in the life of a church that could be very relevant to today. And, uh, and so I just want us to understand that. And uh, last week we looked at Smyrna as the dependable church. This week we'll look at the church of, of Pergamos uh, as the defiled church. And, uh, and so uh, it was pointed out to me afterwards uh, last week that, hey, even in Smyrna, that they still face persecution even today. Uh, and, and that's kind of interesting that a church would even, Christians would still exist in Smyrna today and that it would still be persecuted even today. But it is. And, uh, and so it's interesting just to, uh, to look at those things and, uh, and understand all of those things. I want you to notice, first and foremost, as we've looked at this almost every time, and we'll continue to do so, uh, Jesus gives us the idea here uh, in, in verse number 12, we, give the, we get the attribute of Christ. And uh, it says here, uh, to the angel of the church of Pergamos, write these things, saith he which hath the sharp sword with two edged. I, I have to stop myself because I want to say the, swar, the sharp two edged sword every time. That's the way I say it. And, uh, and, and, but I want you to notice this is an attribute of Christ. And it's pointed out way back in, in Revelation 1, I think it was verse number 20, if I'm not mistaken, somewhere along those lines. It, it had several of those attributes of Jesus Christ that were pointed out and they're brought out. And I find it very relevant and very interesting because as each attribute is brought out of Christ and, and presented, it is very relevant to the message of that church. And we will find the same thing tonight that the Word of God is a very relevant message to the church of Pergamos. And so we'll make application with that. Uh, but we see Christ's attribute as the Word of God. And I'm reminded of the verse in Hebrews 4.12. The Bible says, For the Word of God is quick and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the dividing asunder of the soul and spirit and to the, of the joints and marrow, and I love this phrase, and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. Boy, that's a powerful book. We're not talking about Shakespeare. We're not talking about uh, old-fashioned literature. We're talking about the living Word of God. I can look at you and I can't see your heart. I can evaluate your life and I can, I can make my best guess at the intentions of your life. But in all honesty, I don't know those things. I'm guessing. But I tell you what, this book, man, you stand up and you read it and you listen to preaching by the Word of God and as you read it, boy, it cuts right to your heart and divides between, well, I intended to do this my heart got in the way and this is what happened. 
And, and it divides those things and it tells us, it pinpoints the problem many times in our life. And we'll find that it will do the same thing in this church in Pergamos. And so the Word of God is very powerful and, uh, and a very, uh, very well-designed instrument that God has given to us. And of course, we know that uh, uh, the Word dwelt among us and became flesh. And that would be Jesus Christ paralleling with the Word of God. But I want you to notice, other than Christ's attribute, I want you to notice in verse number 13, he starts off every one of these with this phrase, I know thy works. And it's interesting because the second phrase that he goes to after he knows their works, he deals with a phrase that is specific to each church. It's not always the same. So the first church, he said, and thy labor. And the second church, he says, and thy persecutions or tribulation and poverty. To the third church that we're on tonight, he says, and where thou dwellest. Boy, that spoke to me. I read that and I thought, you know, we, we often, uh, often complain that, man, we live in a wicked day. And we do. Don't get me wrong. I'm not saying we don't live in a wicked day. But I'm also saying it's not new. We don't live in Rome. We don't live in the time of persecution of the Romans uh, that, that would persecute the Christians. And so I'm just saying it's not, wickedness is not new. It has been around for thousands of years. And Christians for thousands of years have decried the fact that it is a wicked world. It is a wicked world. And I would go, I would venture to go a step further and say that we do not have it near as bad as the church that is in Pergamos. Uh, look at what it says about the church in Pergamos. He says, I know where thou dwellest, uh, and where thou dwellest, even, watch this phrase, where Satan's seat is. Well, you talk about a wicked place. That's a pretty wicked place. I could think of some wicked places in America. Uh, I really could. Uh, New Orleans is one of those places in my mind that stands out as Sin City. It's just a wicked place. Uh, I'm sure there are some places in California that are just wicked places. And, and, uh, and you look at some of those places and you may be tempted very much so to say, boy, that is a stronghold of Satan. And it very well could be. As I looked up that phrase and I wanted to find out what did he exactly mean by Satan's seed, I, I really uh, could not find much information, but I do know this, that the Bible says that Satan is the God of this world. And so if he's the God of this world, then he would have ability to set up reigns and set up uh, fortresses and set up strategic military bases, if I could say it that way throughout the world. And you could very easily see where some places would be a stronghold of Satan. Some places would be full of wickedness and all kinds of corruption. And we find that this is the place where Pergamos is, that it was a stronghold of Satan, that it was a place of great wickedness. And, uh, and that's how the Bible describes it as Satan's seat. You've got to imagine it is not a good place for a Christian to dwell. But here they are in Pergamos, Christians that are dwelling where Satan's seed is. And I say, man, praise the Lord that, hey, God is more powerful 
and, and he, the Christians can live in a wicked place where Satan's seat is. And we find that that's where these guys are at. And so we find that. And, uh, and it's certainly full of wickedness. Now I want you to notice here, he says in verse 13, And where thou dwellest, even where Satan's seat is, and thou holdest fast my name, and hast not denied my faith, even in those days where an Antipas was my faithful martyr, who was slain among you, where Satan dwelleth. We see the surrounding wickedness around this church at Pergamos. And these are the conditions with which the, uh, the church at Pergamos was in. But I want you to notice he points out their works, their good things, their good deeds. And this is that they were steadfast. He said, thou holdest fast my name. Now, let's stop and think about this for a minute. If you, if you were raised in church your whole life, let's just say even that you may have gone to a Christian school that honored and glorified God. And you walk into the Christian school and you announce to everyone, hey, I'm a Christian. Everyone looks at you and like, aren't we all? I mean, don't, don't, under, don't get me wrong. It's not hard to proclaim being a Christian in a Christian school. It's easy. But if you lived in an absolute wicked place where the name of God was not respected, matter of fact, it was, it was used in opposition, it was used in blasphemy all day long, and, uh, and the fact that uh, you would stand up and say, I'm a Christian, and they would all mock and, and sneer and say, that guy, he's so old-fashioned. Oh my goodness, he needs to come into the 22nd century. He needs to get with the times, man. That's old stuff. That's, that, was from, that was from centuries ago. And, and boy, we're not that anymore. And, and do you understand what I'm saying? It's far easier in a Christian nation, in a place where we are surrounded with Christianity, to proclaim, hey, I'm a Christian, and hold fast to the name of Christ is not near as challenging as it is in a place where wickedness abounds. And when you step up and say, I am a Christian, and others say, man, what? I didn't know there were any of those left around here. I don't even know what that is. And they sneer and mock. And so God is saying, hey, I commend the fact that you hold fast to my name and you're not fearful to proclaim the name of Jesus Christ in a wicked place. And he commends them for that. And certainly that is a commendable thing. Not only that, but he says there in verse number 13, not only did they hold fast to his name and their steadfastness, but he says this at the end of the verse. He says, even those days, uh, or the second phrase, and hast not denied my faith. Even those days when Antipas was my faithful martyr who was slain among you where Satan dwelleth. And he's saying, not only have you held fast my name, but you've maintained steadfastly the faith of the Lord Jesus Christ when all other people are going against it, when all other people are constantly battering it down, when all other people are calling you, hey, this is old-fashioned and this doesn't work anymore and you need to get out of the last century and come to the new modern time and, and they're, they're constantly tearing down at your faith. And he's saying, hey, you're commended because you've been faithful and you've held your faith. 
And you've continued to believe in the face of opposition, even when Antipas uh, was, was martyred. And I started, I, want, I thought, boy, I wonder who Antipas is. And so I looked up Antipas. You know what was written about him? Zero. We don't have anything written about him. We don't know anything. And, and, and I thought, I actually marveled. I thought, you know what? When we on earth don't know anything about some of the martyrs who have died, hey, God's got record. And He knows. He knows the name of who was martyred. He knows the circumstances under which He was martyred. He knows everything about Antipas. And listen, though the world may erase every record of our faithful stand for the Lord Jesus Christ and what we do for the Lord Jesus Christ, you can mark it down that God has it recorded in heaven. And He knows what you're doing. And He knows how faithful you will be. And He knows that uh, if you stand all the way to the end and you face that, uh, that situation of being martyred for your faith as Antipas was, and we find that uh, the conditions with which they lived in were just horrible conditions. There was absolutely wicked society and everything was against them and yet they held fast to the name of Jesus Christ. They did not deny the faith even though one of their faithful friends had been martyred and died for his faith. We see the conditions and the circumstances that this church was under. And he of course goes on in verse number 14 and he says, but there's some problems. Look at what he says there in verse number 14. He says, But I have a few things against thee, because thou hast there them that hold the doctrine of Balaam, who taught, uh, who taught Balak to cast a stumbling block before the children of Israel to eat things sacrificed unto idols and to commit fornication. And he says the doctrine. So we see the conditions under which they are living, but I want you to notice the corruption that seeped into the church that Jesus is calling out and saying, hey, uh, while you've done good at holding to my name and you've done good at holding to the faith and not losing faith, there are some corruptions that have seeped into the church that we need to make note of. And so he says them, he calls them out. It's the doctrine of Balaam. And what is the, the doctrine of Balaam? Well, you can go back in the book of Numbers and you can read it. We won't forsake a time tonight. But uh, Balaam basically uh, was a prophet of God who was hired by the enemy to go up and to curse the people of God. Now that's a strange request, to be honest with you. Why anybody would hire a prophet of God to curse the people of God is beyond me. That just... That blows my mind. Uh, but that's what took place. And, and so you would think a prophet of God would have more sense than to go along with that. But here is Balaam. Okay, he's obviously a man of hire and looking for cash. And, uh, and so he goes along with it. And you know the story. If you don't know the story, go back and read a wonderful story. And as they're going up and he's going up, uh, I love this, the, the donkey that he's riding on. All of a sudden... Uh, turns aside in the way. He gets angry. He whips his donkey. He says, hey, get back in the path. 
And so up they go a little bit farther, and pretty soon the donkey again turns off the path. He gets upset at his donkey and whips his donkey and says, hey, get back in the path. And so that donkey gets back in the path. They go up a little, wor- a little farther, and it's a straight way with a wall on either side. And again, uh, each time the Lord has placed an angel with a sword there in the path, and, this, and the donkey saw it, and the man of God didn't. You talk about being dumb. Anyways... The donkey sees the man with the sword and and veers to the side and smashes Balaam's leg. Boy, he gets mad and he draws his sword out and he's ready to kill his donkey. What's he say? He says, his donkey opens his mouth. He said, have not I been your donkey all this time and I've always been faithful and let you ride me everywhere and I've gone where you want me to go. And of course, Balaam gets into this argument with the donkey. Well, of course. Like it's natural to talk to your donkey. You find that actually God used that donkey to protect the man of God. That man of God was ignorant. Balaam was ignorant for going up that mountain thinking that he was going to accept cash to curse the people of God. And, and, and he must, how could you even think that? Because God said very clearly that those who bless Israel will I bless, and those who curse Israel will I curse. And I think to myself, why would you even think about cursing the people of God? That'd be foolish. But anyways, uh, this is the doctrine that had seeped into uh, the church there in Pergamos. What is that doctrine? The idea of it that he gives is that Balaam allows the corruption of the flesh to seep in. In other words, it's okay uh, to walk with the world and claim to be a Christian. That's the idea. Uh, that he pulls out of that. That's the stumbling block that he causes the nation of Israel to think that it's okay to accept the, uh, the money of the world uh, to do some kind of spiritual work when it's not what God wants. And we find there's all kinds of things there, but there is the doctrine that that's what the Word of God calls it, of Balaam who taught in verse number 14, Balak to cast a stumbling block before the children of Israel. And listen, what we can take away from that is we as a church ought to be very careful to not cast a stumbling block before the people that are saved. Our goal in our life ought to be constantly to point people to Jesus Christ. We live in a day and age when, when many, many Christians, uh, they want to, and I've said this so many times, they want to hold on to God, but they want to be facing the world and, and go f- headlong into worldly practices, worldly ideas, worldly philosophies, just holding on to God for salvation. That's really all they want. And that's the idea of the doctrine of Balaam. He's saying that you've cast a stumbling block before the people. And he's saying, hey, that is a problem of doctrine. That Balaam would walk with the world and try to live for God. You cannot mix the world with godliness. This morning we talked about doctrine. And you know what? Our doctrine ought to promote godliness over and over and over you see that you know what the problem with the doctrine of Balaam was it did not promote godliness it promoted worldliness it was having your eyes and your life focused towards worldly things and not towards godliness and this is what slipped into the church at Pergamos 
And God is saying, yes, you did good because you held fast to my name. Hey, there's a lot of churches today in America that proclaim the name of Christ. There are a lot of churches today that proclaim faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. But listen, they have veered from the doctrine and they hold the doctrine of Balaam in their church. And listen, we ought to be very careful of the doctrine of Balaam. Because it is a dangerous doctrine. We want to hold fast to the name of God. We want to hold fast to the faith. We want to hold fast to the doctrines of God. It is important. We find not only the doctrine of the Balaam, but I want you to notice there in verse number uh, 15, he says, So hast thou also them that hold the doctrine of the Nicolaitans, which thing I hate. You say, boy, what is... What is the doctrine of the Nicolaitans? I'll tell you this. I looked it up, and I have no idea. It doesn't tell us anywhere. I couldn't find any answer anywhere. But I do know this, that the Bible says that God hates it. And I don't know, but I just know this, that when Christ gave His attribute about the Word of God, the sharp uh, sword with two edges, that I know this, doctrine comes from the Word of God, and we ought to be very careful pulling, we ought never pull our doctrine from other churches, other religions, and pull that into our church and allow it to dominate our philosophies, but rather go directly to the Word of God, the sharp two-edged sword that would define our doctrine. Otherwise, we may end up with a doctrine of the Nicolaitans, which God would hate. So we need to be very careful about the doctrine. We see the corruption that slipped into the church of Pergamos, and it was problematic. We do see the conditions and the circumstances under which they lived. It was a wicked day. It was a wicked time. We do see the corruptions that managed to work their way inside of that church. But I want you to notice as well, in verse number 16, the Bible says this. Jesus says, Repent, or else... I will come unto thee quickly and will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. And we see here in verse number 16 the call of God to, number one, to repentance. And we know what repentance is. Repentance is turning with genuine sorrow and regret and asking God to forgive you and God to help you uh, straighten out your life. Listen, this is repentance to saved people. Uh, listen, sometimes saved people need to repent. Hey, when you get off track and, and you're, you're walking in the world and you're living in the world, and listen, God does call us to repentance and He does warn us and He does say, hey, listen, Christian, you're off track. You're heading the wrong direction and He'll give you gentle nudges and He'll give you gentle uh, spurs in your life that says, hey, you're not, you're not doing right. And if you ignore those warning signs, hey, there might come a little bit of a harder spur. There might come a little bit of a more firm uh, work from God. God, and I don't know how God all works, but I do know looking through the Bible, uh, there's many times that he flat out, well, he says in this verse, or else I will come unto thee quickly and will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. And so we have a call to repentance, and that would be a turning, and then a call to retribution. 
And he says, listen, if you don't repent, there will be retribution. And, and what I find interesting about this call, remember the conditions that they live in. They live, they dwell in Satan's seat. But understand this, God is not giving excuse at this time for them. Well, you know what? They live in Satan's seat, so you know what? We'll concede the fact that they've allowed a little bit of corruption in the church, and we'll just be glad that they're holding to the name of Christ and that they're holding the faith. No, no, no. God says, listen, you have corruption that has creeped into your churches, and you better repent of it. In other words, you can't continue living worldly lives and walking in the doctrine of Balaam and causing a stumbling block to every other Christian. Hey, you have got to get your life cleaned up. And I'm amazed. Hey, listen, God doesn't excuse our wicked living because the wicked day that we live in. He says, repent or else I will come quickly. And there's retribution. There is the fact that He will uh, judge us and that we will be held accountable for our actions. Go with me over to 1 Corinthians chapter 3. I was sitting in my office before church and I was just reading over this passage. 1 Corinthians chapter number 3. As we look at, at the fact that God does hold us accountable. 1 Corinthians chapter number 3 and verse number... We'll start in verse number... Let's go in verse number... Nine there. Kind of jumping in the middle, but 1 Corinthians chapter number 3 and verse number 9. The Bible says, For we are laborers together with God. Ye are God's husbandry. Ye are God's building according to the grace of God which is given unto me as a wise master builder. I have laid the foundation and another buildeth thereon. But let every man take heed how he buildeth thereon. He's talking about soul winning. He's talking about seeing people saved. And once these people have been saved and established in a church, and he's saying, hey, you are building on that foundation. That foundation is, of course, Jesus Christ. There is no other foundation. Uh, that's what the Bible says. And so that foundation is salvation. It's Jesus Christ. But then after that, hey, you build your life. And, and it's built upon uh, by, by the teaching of the Word of God. And so he says, take heed how ye build on that. Uh, verse 11, this is all the things that I just talked about, the foundation being Christ. For other foundation can no man lay than that is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now if any man build up, uh, build upon his foundation gold, silver, precious stone, wood, hay, stubble. Verse 13, every man's work shall be made manifest, for the day shall declare it, because it shall be revealed by fire. And the fire shall try every man's work of what sort it is. If any man's work abide which he hath built thereupon, he shall receive a reward. If any man's work shall be burned, he shall suffer loss, but he himself shall be saved, yet so as by fire. 
And what he's describing here is the judgment of God that would come upon our life and how we build our life and how we live our life. Hey, listen, if we're saved and we grab hold of God and we run straight into the world, yes, we'll not lose our salvation, but come to the day of of judgment as well. Hey, we will have nothing to show for our salvation because we built hay, stubble, and wood, things that will perish, things that will be burnt up in a fire. But if you live your life for the Lord Jesus Christ and, and you say, hey, I'm not falling for the doctrine of, of Balaam and I'm not going to live a worldly life, but I'm going to live for God as God would expect, then hey, listen, we'll have the, the precious stones, the gold, the silver, the things that we are building on our life that are far more important than the worldly things that can be built. And so God is calling to us, hey, Repent, turn from the world, and get back to God. Get back to the Word of God. Get back to following God. Or, he says there, else I will come quickly and will fight against them with what? The sword of my mouth. Hey, the Word of God is ultimately our judgment. We'll stand before this book. And he'll say, didn't I tell you to Love not the world, neither the things that are in the world, then why did you? Didn't I tell you to set your affection on things above and not on things of this earth, then why didn't you? Didn't I tell you that uh, you are to take up your cross and follow me, why didn't you? And this book alone will, will judge us. And you'll say, man, I did know all of that. It is in the Word of God, every bit of it. And I didn't do it. And we will have no excuse. I'm saying this, that God is calling to the church of Pergamos, saying, hey, repent or face retribution. That would be the the fact that God would fight against us with his word. We find the call. I want you to see the conqueror's promise in verse number 17 as well. He ends every one of them like this. He that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches. To him that overcometh. I'll mention this again. I might mention this every single time. 1 John chapter 5 and verse number 4, we find the word overcometh. The Bible says this, For whatsoever is born of God overcometh the world, and this is the victory that overcometh the world, even our faith. He, who is he that overcometh the world? But he that believeth that Jesus is the Son of God. And this promise is to saved people. Well, you would read it and you might think, well, does that mean we can overcome or we can fail at overcoming? Listen, if you're a child of God and you've put your faith in Jesus Christ for your salvation, then you are an overcomer. That's what 1 John 5, 4 and 5 says. And so that's, uh, we understand that. And I want that to be very clear throughout all of these messages that uh, the overcomer is that who is saved. And he says this, To him that overcometh will I give to eat of the hidden manna. And will give him a, there's three things here, give him to eat of a hidden manna and will give him a white stone and in the, the stone a new name written down. And you say, boy, what, what do all those things mean? I, I don't know exactly, but I know this. What's that manna? That manna is reference to how God 
took care of the nation of Israel in a barren and desert land. Hey, listen, if you live in Satan's seat, I can promise you this spiritually. It's probably a barren and desert land. But you take time for the word of God in your life. Hey, and you'll find manna every single day. That hidden, sweet manna of God that he'll provide for you to give you the strength to go through the barren, dry desert of this world. And he will take care of you and feed you. He promises the hidden manna. He promises the white stone. I don't know uh, exactly what that white stone is. Uh, the Bible doesn't make it clear, but I do know this, that throughout Scripture, many times that white represents purity. Praise the Lord, I'm not pure based on Shane Rice's actions, but I'm pure based on Jesus Christ. And the fact that he's washed me, he justified me. Praise the Lord for that. White stone. Then he says, that's written a new name. Hey, we sing that song, there's a new name written down in glory, and it's mine. He says here, it's a new name, and nobody's going to know it until you get the stone, and only him that receiveth it. It's curious. I don't know what all it means. I'm just telling you that there's some things that God tells us he's going to do for us. We don't understand all that's out there, but I tell you this, we will one day. Hey, we'll get there, and we'll see, and we'll be like, oh, that's what he meant when he said that. Oh, that's what he was talking about. And I just want us to understand tonight that, listen, the church at Pergamos, lived, they dwelt where Satan's seat was. Wicked place, full of wickedness. But here's the thing, if they would have held fast to the word of God, they held fast to the name of Christ, they held fast to their faith, if they would have held fast to the word of God, hey, that doctrine would have been kept intact. They would not have fallen for the doctrine of Balaam. They wouldn't have followed after the doctrine of the Nicolaitans, and their church would have come out very commended of God, but that's not what took place. They did allow the doctrine of Balaam to come in. They did allow the doctrine of the Nicolaitans to come in. And may we be encouraged, and may we be strengthened in the word of God to say, hey, the sharp sword that hath two edges, that's what we need to focus on. That's what we need to dwell upon. The word of God, his call to repentance. Listen, God's, God's not looking for excuses. He's not going to say, well, you know, they did dwell in the seat of Satan. No, no, no. He, he's still calling them to repentance. No, you need to get it right. You need to get that doctrine, that bad doctrine out of the church. You need to get back to Christ, back to the word of God. And he says, if not, there will be retribution. There will be, uh, the, I will, and, and will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. Boy, I don't want to be on the receiving end of God's judgment. I want to be on the grace side of God. I want to be on the side that says, hey, I'm glad. I want to be like the church in Smyrna. There was nothing negative said about the church in Smyrna. So we must hold fast to the word of God. That's what he starts out with, the attribute of Christ, that Sharp sword with two edges. He calls them to repentance and we see the conquerors. Listen, those that are saved, you won't lose your salvation. If you've trusted in the Lord as your personal Savior, you're not going to lose that. The Bible is very clear about that all throughout Scripture. But hey, we want, we want those promises from God. And he gives us promises after each and every message to the church. As we stand to our feet with our heads bowed and our eyes closed, Listen, we, we live in a wicked day. 
Maybe you work in a wicked place. Maybe Satan has a stronghold where you work. Maybe Satan has a stronghold where you go to school or the place that you're at in your life. Take faith because you can hold fast the name of God. You can hold fast your faith and you can hold fast the Word of God and maintain a pure life, not based on your strength, based on God. And you can live right and you can do right. Father, we thank you for your word. God, I'm amazed at your messages to these churches, the church at Ephesus, the church at Smyrna, the church at Pergamos. And God, how each message was so fitting for the church and for that time that they were in. And God, in some, in some regards, we can find a little bit of their times and our times that we live. And God, I'm certainly sure that there are far worse and far more evil places than where we dwell. Let us not take and underestimate the power of Satan, but may we grasp firmly hold of your word and of your faith and of your name. May we cling to them and hold fast to them. God, I pray that you would help us to walk with you and to obey you in our life. Father, we'll thank you for that. We'll give you the honor and glory for that. And God, I ask these things in Jesus' precious name, I pray. Amen. Again, with our heads bowed and our eyes closed as a piano begins to play, maybe God spoke in your heart. Maybe you just want to ask him for strength. Maybe you do feel like, man, you work in and Satan has a stronghold in the place that you work. I wouldn't be surprised, to be honest with you. We live in an ungodly society. We live in a lost world. But let's not use that to excuse ourselves. To not live right. To not do right. To not walk right. To not talk right. May we do what is right in our life. Because God calls us to do that.